0: Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Jody, Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, and Janet, and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that's in your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Miranda Bell-Tilcock. Miranda is a senior environmental scientist for the Delta Sewardship Council. She received both her bachelor's and master's from the University of California, Davis, and her research focuses on using various stable isotopes in different tissues, for example, otoliths, eye lenses, muscle, and stomach contents to identify critical habitat for salmon viability. All right, welcome to the podcast, Miranda. Thank you for having me. I always like to start with people's background. So could you talk a bit about where your interests in fisheries first began?
1: Yeah, of course. My interests go back to oh, pretty much as far back as I can remember. I've always been just fascinated by what was happening underneath the surface of the water. And um, I grew up with a creek next door to my house. And I would always go and investigate it every summer and see you know, what kind of fish I could find. I never did find any. But because um, it was a really shallow, small creek and I, you know, I'd find like crawdads and like tadpoles and stuff, but never actually any fish. But I was also a kid kind of clunking around in the creek and I'm sure I scared them off before I could ever see any. And I also just have like clear memories of like my dad taking me, trying to take me fishing and uh, just being like super confused as to why he was fishing, because there were clearly all these fish here at the dock that you could just feed with, the, you know, like, whatever I don't know, dog or cat food that they mm-hmm. have that you can get for like a quarter. And, uh, and I was like, why are you fishing over there? Like the fish are clearly over here. But I just didn't understand that um, the different types of fish and that, the, that he did not want to eat a carp. He wanted yeah. a catfish. <laughs> and so um, I would just spend like an hour or two just feeding carp and going back and forth between either feeding them individually or just throwing a handful of feed at the time. And uh, I was just always obsessed with them. And I just thought they were so cool that, you know, you have all these this whole world that exists underneath the surface of the water. And just watching documentaries on the Discovery Channel of seeing what lives in the ocean and being far away from the ocean. Like I just I always assumed I was gonna be like every like a marine biologist, but I didn't realize at the time I actually really wanted to be a fishery scientist. And then, you know, later on I kind of found out I don't do so well on the ocean <laughs> and that I should stick to the fresh water. Because I get seasick very easily, <laughs> and so, um, so I, I I just love uh, you know doing research in freshwater fish um, or you know doing research on salmon. So mm-hmm. get you a fish that does both ocean okay. and freshwater. <laughs> so I can stay in a little bit of both worlds, but physically I have to stay out of the ocean.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I feel like that was really similar for me. It was those documentaries like Blue Planet and things like that. Like, oh, I definitely want to work as a marine biologist. And it wasn't until I actually got to work with freshwater fish that I'm like, oh, these are pretty cool, too. So
1: Yeah, I actually like them a lot better than uh-huh. most most marine fish because there's just there's so many really fascinating freshwater fish out there and that all live really interesting lives. And it's just it's incredible to me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Can you talk a bit about your career path up to your current position?
1: Yeah, so I did not have what I would consider a very traditional career trajectory. I originally always thought I was going to do fisheries work, but I had, I didn't have the best science classes in my high school class. And so I figured, oh, this must not be for me and the kind of career path I want. And it wasn't until I got into college and I was just kind of studying like whatever, I actually had this really amazing uh, conservation ecologist professor, and I wish I could remember his name because I feel like I need to send him a thank you note because he was like the most inspiring teacher and he really kind of reignited my love for ecology and conservation and fisheries. It was also in Missouri and he wore shorts almost every single day including when it was snowing outside and so he was insane and I just absolutely adored him and so I eventually then packed up and moved to California because I just really didn't want to live in Missouri (laughs) anymore because I was like I had the opportunity to move to California I was like well I'm gonna take it Mm -hmm. um and I started going to school here first at the community college before I could transfer it to UC Davis And I did my last two years of my bachelor's degree at UC Davis. And so it really took me almost like six years to get my bachelor's because I kept quitting and I quit and started and then I had to go to community college and then to school. And in that time, I had actually like met my husband and we actually had a child. And so I actually started my I started the last leg of my undergraduate journey with a five week old baby, which is an insane thing to do. (laughs) And so. I finished my bachelor's. I started working in fisheries. I absolutely loved it. I was at the Center for Watershed Sciences, which was such an amazing place to be able to work at. And um, at that time I had another kid and then I had the opportunity to go back and get my master's and so I did that (laughs) because apparently I can't start a degree without uh, having a child. And then uh, after that, I continued to work with Center for Watershed Sciences to expand on the island's work that I had started during my master's degree. Uh, And I was really fortunate to have a place as amazing as Center for Watershed Sciences to be able to do this work in. And so I worked there for a few years, and I eventually decided that I needed a little bit more stability than academia could provide for me because I also had a third kid and I decided I was not going to go back for a third degree. Mm -hmm. And so I decided then that I wanted to look at other opportunities that were out there on the landscape. And so I very slowly, you know, over the course of the year was like looking at different jobs that were coming up at agencies. And I really wanted to work at the Delta Stewardship Council because I had always heard such great things about it. And I actually applied there a couple of different times and didn't land a job. But then what I feel like was the perfect job actually came up for me uh, about, I guess, six months ago, six or seven months ago now. And uh, so I applied for that and then actually got it. And so I just started working there in September. So I haven't been at the Delta Stewardship Council for too long, but so far it's been a great place to land outside of academia. So, yeah, that's a really long winded answer of my Really long journey of how I got here. Now <laughs> it's
0: <that's> perfect. <laughs> so I guess maybe I'll just give a little background to the listeners on how this interview came about. I remember seeing you post on Twitter about leaving academia for a different type of job. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting to think about, especially me being a PhD student, thinking about future jobs. (laughs) (laughs) And when I clicked on your profile, I then saw your work using fish eye lenses or stable isotopes and fish eye lenses to look at diets. And I just thought that was super awesome. And so that's why would initially like push me to ask if you wanted to be interviewed for the fisheries podcast. And I'm so excited you agreed because I think, I don't think I've ever heard about using fish eyes or looking at stable isotopes and fish eyes and using that to look at diets before. And I don't know if that's super common. So I was just kind of curious, how did that work come about and is this like really commonly used or is it kind of a more novel approach?
1: So answer your question. Yes. Uh, (laughs) It is both novel, but it's becoming a lot more common. Mm -hmm. When I started doing it, I started looking at the idea of using eye lenses, I think going back to almost 2017. And at that time, there was only one paper really published on the subject of actually peeling the lenses and using them for stable isotopes. There's been other papers previously that have looked at fish eye lenses, but looking at them in more of the sense of like how you would look at an otolith, like doing the more Mm -hmm. cross-section and the laser ablation method. And so this was a technique that was really introduced out of a lab in Florida. And when I was doing my master's, the main question that I was actually trying to answer had absolutely nothing to do with eye lenses. Is I was interested in identifying an isotopic value that was unique to floodplain habitats so that we could then use this to be able to identify floodplain use in fish. Uh, as they, when they come back as adults and seeing how important this was. Obviously, I was doing stomach contents and muscle tissues, but those tissues turn over or go away over time. And so if you're really wanting to look at this, we we're thinking, okay, we're going to have to use an otolith. And I just remember um, one of my advisors, she was t- describing the method I would need to use on an otolith. And I always consider myself to be very otolith adjacent. I love otoliths. I think they're beautiful. And I love the data you get from them. I, however, do not love the prep work involved in getting that data. And so when she was describing the process to me, I was like, how could we not do this? <laughs> because I don't want to do any of the things that you just said. And so she saw this poster at an AFS conference in Florida. and she was like, okay, they did carbon nitrogen. Can we do sulfur? And I was like, well, here's the thing. I'm going to figure it out because I don't want to do an otolith. And so it took, it was a painstaking process because there was only the one paper I was working on much smaller lenses than they were working on the adult marine fish. I was working on juvenile fish that are only a few inches long. And, um, The beautiful thing about lenses, though, is that they are so rich in protein and that particularly they have these sulfur-bearing compound amino acids like cysteine and methionine in them, that they have so much sulfur in them that even though I was working with a really small lens, there was enough material in there to actually get accurate isotope measurements so I could get carbon, I could get nitrogen, and I could get sulfur, which is ultimately what I wanted, sulfur isotope values. And when I started peeling these lenses and submitting them, when I got the data back, it was kind of unbelievable. I couldn't believe it really, because it just looked too good and like suspiciously good. And mm-hmm. so I was like, this can't be correct. But every time we would submit more eyes, more data from our cage fish from these floodplains versus the rivers, you know, you, we kept getting the same results and we're still seeing these same results. So it's been an incredible technique that we've been able to adapt to our needs and being able to use them on salmon and to see this project grow from being just a side project on my master's thesis to become this huge project that we now call our eyes and ears project at, at Watershed at CWS where I used to work. has just been like the most amazing process to be a part of. And I feel so fortunate that I've been able to see this project go from, to go from that small lab experiment of me, you know, eye lenses kind of going all over the place mm-hmm. and because there was definitely um, a trial and error <laughs> component yeah. to learning how to peel an islands properly because I didn't have anybody to train me. So lots of eye lo- eyeballs lost in that process. So RAP to all those <laughs> eyeballs um, that littered the lab <laughs> or the, all the ones that I crushed in the lab trying to peel them because they were too dry and when they get too dry, they become too brittle. And so they shatter or um, if they get too wet, they become mush. And so then they just become sludge and you can't do anything. So it's, um, it was quite the learning curve. I'll say that, Yeah, but yeah, it, it was, um, it's still, yeah. So it's still relatively new, but it's becoming a lot more popular because of what a powerful tool it actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that is so cool. So are they kind of, are they similar to Lodalus where you can, gauge different time points throughout the fish's life or is it more of a like at the time you caught them that type of like resolution
1: um so it really depends on how well you peel and how well you know your species so for us you know we're working with salmon and we have fish that have been caged at various sizes and so we were able to actually reconstruct their fork lengths based on their lens diameter And at least for a certain part of their life, for their juvenile life period, we have the resolution for that. And so we know that if we're, for example, we know that if we hit 1.5 millimeter diameter in the lens, that we are looking at the juvenile portion of their life history. We also use lenses um, and they're looking at their ocean diets. And so when we do that, we are typically doing uh, two millimeters and then the rest of the lens after that. But you can know you can also we've also have had projects where we're like, we're just interested in the last month. And so we will only look at that outermost layer. You don't get the same resolution as you do with otoliths because with otoliths, you have those, you know, daily or annual rings and they have like a very unique time stamp associated with them. We don't necessarily have that for the lenses where it depending on how the fish is growing, can determine how many layers they're putting down, but the layers can also be subjective to how good of a peeler you are. So there's a lot of nuance with it. So it makes the the timing pretty difficult. But the way you can make those comparison is by looking at your diameter and and knowing your species essentially. Okay. To be able to kind of retrace that those steps if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I suppose this is kind of related. So I guess when you're thinking about your research questions, I'm just kind of curious like what inferences or like under what scenarios is it more beneficial to answer questions using fish eye lenses versus otolus or muscle or anything like that.
1: All right. So I think it really depends on the question you're asking. So I consider Otolus and eye lenses to be two different tools and two parts of the same whole. And so With the otolith, how we're using it for our our eyes and ears project is that we're using it to track their natal origins, so where the fish was born. And then we're looking at what rivers they're taking on the way out. But then we're using the lenses to understand what habitats they are using on their way out, because they're answering completely different questions. The lenses are very similar to a muscle tissue in that Um, They're very protein-rich, and so they're going to archive extremely well those isotopes that are related to diet, things that bind to proteins. So that's why carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur work super well in the lenses. Comparing that to an otolith, which is a calcium carbonate structure that has alternating rings of protein in it, the protein matrix in there is just very limited. And so you have, you can get sulfur from an otolith. It's just a little bit of a different, it's a different process. You can get carbon from an otolith, but there is also, you have your issues with like inorganic versus organic carbon compared to in the lens you're going to get, you know, you're just getting your, their diet sources. Mm -hmm. And then as far as I know, I don't think you can get nitrogen from an odolith if, if you can it's very difficult i'm not entirely sure but there's just not enough protein i think i think the studies that i know of that have used nitrogen and odolith have like ground up the entire odolith mm. and so you know you're making you're taking a really broad look at that right. point with it and so um they're just really different tools and but if if you have both i mean both would be amazing to be able to use together because of all the information that you can get and you can get this more holistic viewpoint at the fish, understanding a fish on such an individual level that you can then make better inferences on a population level of what's going on with these, these species by having all of that information together. So you're just, basically you're going to drown yourself in data and yeah. <laughs> hope for the best. <laughs> awesome. That's cool.
0: So when you're looking at like what habitats they're using from the islands, how detailed can that be? Or like, is it that they're eating invertebrates and you can tell they're eating invertebrates and those are tied to specific places like floodplains or yeah, how how does that all work for actually getting the inference about what habitats they're using within the river?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I feel like every ecology question has the same answer of it depends. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) to answer that, it depends. Um, But it it depends on how well you know your system. Um, So for when I was doing my master's, the fish that were on the floodplain were consuming mostly zooplankton and those zooplankton were feeding on a mostly like microbial bacteria environment. And that's why their sulfur value is so reduced uh, compared to the river, which are more aquatic invertebrates and there's more chlorophyll, not more chlorophyll, but there was just not of those like microbial food webs that are occurring Mm -hmm. in the river. And because I knew those differences there, I was able to see that in the islands as well, but I could only see that in the islands if they have been consuming on that food web for a long enough time for it to archive in the islands. So it's similar to the muscle tissue that it's going to take about a month to really archive that habitat value in there because they have to be consuming enough of the food web in that place and for a long enough time for it to actually show up. but. You can think of it as looking at all those different food web studies that are out there where they'll take muscle tissues of a fish, but they'll also sample the rest of the food web and do their, you know, their Bayesian mixing models to see how much um, is being input from chironomids and how much is being input from zooplankton and then how much those were algae versus microbial sources. You know, when they start looking at their different sources and creating those food webs that patterns that we see in papers with all the arrows and things like that. Mm-hmm. You can do the same thing. The islands would be another thing to another level to add to that. And the nice thing about it is that it's a permanent archive. And so you can go back in time and do this and you can compare it to those food webs. So you have to really know your system to be able to identify, you know, where they're feeding on and what what they're feeding on. Mm-hmm. So. We're also interested in looking at the thymine deficiency in the ocean and how that's affecting salmon. And so we're looking at the ocean food webs and seeing, like, okay, are they feeding more on anchovy? And that's been more of a difficult question to answer because the oceans are really complicated, mm-hmm. and understanding what that anchovy fingerprint is is a lot more complicated than you know a zooplankton and a floodplain. So it yeah so to answer your question it just depends and it really you just you really need to know your system and that's how it should be for anybody who's trying to do isotope food web work is that you know you want to sample everything and figure Mm -hmm. out what those values are for each of those individuals out there in your system so then you can actually make meaningful interpretations of your lens data or muscle data if that's what you're using
0: very cool so did you have to actually like sample the zooplankton and the aquatic invertebrates to get those values? Or can you take a water sample and get the same inference?
1: So I used stomach contents because I wanted to see exactly what they were consuming. Mm-hmm. And it just, my samples happened to be, you know, 100% of like this one type of zooplankton That's in them versus, um, or a composite sample for the mm-hmm. river fish where there was most, you know, midges and some of the smaller zooplankton. The water samples would be something that you would do, like, if you were trying to understand what the strontium mm-hmm. is in a river, so you could take a water sample for that, and that's something that you would look in an otolith for. Uh, for food webs, though, you would either need to look at their stomach contents, or you would need to sample that specific food web in that, uh, in that yeah. habitat. Okay, cool. Oh man, this is... So interesting. I love learning about your techniques. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I'm not, I'm not being too convoluted about it. <laughs> no, this is great. Is there any
0: other aspects of that project that you'd be interested in talking about that I didn't think to ask
1: about? Yeah, I would just say it's a really incredible tool that um, definitely needs to get used a lot more. And I love seeing all the different stuff that's now coming out that people are doing with it. And that it's also what's really cool is that some labs are actually using these in various cephalopods, like squids. So it's not just unique to fish, but I I only know of it so far being um, viable in, like, squid and fish. Mm -hmm. I, I have tried a frog eye, and that did not go well. And I also tried a bird eye, and that also went horribly. So you cannot... In case anybody's curious, you cannot peel those. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to know. (laughs) Yeah, I've been trying to I need to get a mammal eye of sorts Mm -hmm. to see if you could peel it. I've heard tales um, of people messing with lenses from when they had to do a cow eye in biology Uh back in the day, but uh, I haven't had experience with myself, so I'm very intrigued. Yeah, cool.
0: Okay. Then we can move on. Um, So as you mentioned, you recently started a job with the Delta Stewardship Council. Now, I was wondering if you could first just explain what the Delta Stewardship Council is and what they do.
1: Yeah. So the Delta Stewardship Council is a small state agency here in Sacramento, California, formed back in 2009. So it's relatively young compared to some of the other agencies. And it was created so it could help the state Achieve its co equal goals of securing water supply and a healthy Delta ecosystem. And the Delta is super important here to California. And then, as anybody who sees news in California, I feel like, you know, water in California comes up all the time. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. knowing how to, you know, manage our water and our ecosystem is, is incredibly important in California. And Delta Stewardship Council plays a really wonderful role in helping coordinate and making that possible. Awesome,
0: and then can you talk a bit about what your roles are as a senior environmental scientist for them? Yeah, totally. I, I'm still learning it
1: myself. I feel like <laughs> because <But, laughs> um, it's, it's I've, I've been there for about four months now, and mm-hmm. so far I really love it. It's been it's been a wonderful transition. So one of the things that I am responsible for is I am helping plan our Bay Delta Science Conference, and so that is a way for us to bring. All the different agencies, uh, both federal and state together, as well as academia managers, uh, even the general public, to look at um, all the different research that's occurring in our Bay Delta region. Uh, We also incorporate lots of artwork from local artists, or the scientists can submit their artwork that kind of goes with their project. It's a really incredible conference that they, um, they do every other year, and so I'm really excited to be a part of coordinating and planning that. Because um, it's one of my favorites to go to, and it's just here. It's here in Sacramento, and it's just it's going to be awesome. The another thing that I do that's going to be that I'm really excited about is I am going to be helping supporting the synthesis science research that occurs at the Delta Stewardship Council, and that is by working with a group called NCS. Every other year, we have these different workshops where there'll be a specific topic. That's going to be happen. that happens in NCS provides amazing training for us at three different workshops that are about a week long. Uh, I was fortunate. I came in kind of in the middle um, of that happening. And so I started actually in the second workshop and it was really cool. I, I learned uh, lots of new techniques in R that I didn't know about. I use R almost all the time. And so I, I love learning new things in it and so the, I get to learn lots of cool new techniques and uh, types of analysis in there. And then you know we get all these people together again from you know, academic backgrounds, agency backgrounds, and all these different scientists to come together to work on a synthesis project because there's just so much data that's available mm-hmm. out there, all this lo- all these long-term data sets and we can you know answer a lot of questions and you know create some really powerful projects by, Synthesizing all of these data, and it's really a great opportunity to be working with all these different people who have all these different backgrounds that are able to come together and, and work on these projects. And so, I like I said, I was kind of thrown in, in the middle of that one, and it's been awesome so far. And I'm really excited to plan the next workshop, and hopefully, my top they like my topic that I wanted to cover <laughs> on that one. And then I also, I providing some of the best available sciences out there. One way I get to do that, which I'm always, I'm really happy about is that I still get to work with my lab at UC Davis for, at the Center for Watershed Sciences. And I am, I'm still able to be heavily involved in all of the eyeball research because it is really important for our salmon management to understand, you know, how the water going onto the floodplains is really beneficial for those populations. And so I've been able to kind of take my favorite parts of my previous job and keep them and take on all these new responsibilities at my new position and incorporate them into one project and then provide any science support that is needed whenever they want me to like review a paper or a document. And so it's, it's really kind of almost like a dream come true job because I get to keep all the things I like and I'm doing all the things I like instead. <laughs> so, um, I'm very, I'm very happy with the the transition here. Yeah. I was curious if you were going
0: to get to keep doing the eyeball research or not. So that's awesome. That stays part of your realm anyways.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, I, that was something I had asked in the interview. Um, if I would be able to continue on with that, just because as much as I, um, you know, I wanted to take a step back from academia and looking for that stability agency. I, there's a part of me that just can't can't mm-hmm. leave the eyeballs alone. <laughs> so, I uh, I just I I was super happy that uh, my supervisor there was very happy to keep me in the eyeball loop, if you will, and continue on with the lens research. Um, I was actually before this, I was actually at my former labs lab meetings to kind of go over what's happening in there. So I like, I'm, I'm so fortunate to be able to stay plugged in to that part of my research life. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: I am also curious, just having worked in academia and now in this new position, have you noticed any big differences between the two or like pros and cons of each?
1: It's hard to really say just because my job is so different now compared Mm -hmm. to like a really strictly research job. At my previous lab, I my favorite part of it was I actually would mentor a lot of the students and a lot of the early career scientists and like helping them create projects for posters or presentations for conferences. And I don't have that really the same kind of thing here. I, although I am going to be helping mentor our new science fellow that's coming in, although that should be fun for both of us since I still am learning my job. <laughs> so We'll see how it goes mentoring someone else who's new, But yeah, it's just there's such there's such different jobs. And so and, I, and I'm still keeping so much of my not so much of my other job. I'm still keeping a lot of my other job that it's hard for me to really weigh the actual like pros and cons of mm-hmm. it. And I would also say the lab that I came from, from academia, like you hear, I feel like so many horror stories, but my lab was really great in terms of work life balance. They've always have been really supportive of me with having kids and the family and, you know, being on maternity leave. Like when I was on my maternity leave for my last kid, they actually, my paper comments for my thesis that I was trying to publish actually came back and they actually pushed that across the finish line for me and took care of my reviewer comments for me. <laughs> and I was eternally grateful because I never wanted to look at that paper again. Uh-huh. So I, I, don't know, I came from a really supportive lab where I you know knew everybody super well. And so I would say the biggest con is that I don't get to see them or work with them as much as I would like to, because, and I do really miss them. But the pro is that, you know, I do have more stability than academia Mm -hmm. can provide in terms of uh, job stability. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I'm also not too far away from them. I still live in the exact same town. My child's daycare is like down the street from my former lab. So I actually like, was there this morning mm-hmm. <laughs> to, uh, to say hi. So I don't know, even though I left, I didn't really leave yeah. <laughs> academia, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of a weird answer, I think. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't really have any pros and cons. That's great. No, that that's great. Just talking
0: through it is perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this isn't a question I thought to ask earlier, so you don't need to answer it if you don't want. But what has been your experience being a mom and trying to like go through grad school and find a permanent job because I just have a dog myself (laughs) it's like I can't fathom adding like a mom like that kind of responsibility on top of what I'm already doing and I just find it really impressive and I was just curious if you have any (laughs) thoughts on that or like tips and tricks for other people who might be in a similar situation
1: um I mean it's definitely not easy but I also I didn't feel like I wanted to put my life on hold Mm -hmm. to um to get my degrees. I wanted I really was eager to start a family. But I think the way that I I learned through my undergraduate program and then that I actually put into practice really well as a as a grad student was just managing my time a lot better. I learned pretty quickly as an undergrad that the way I used to do my work and study for exams was not going to work for me anymore, you know, pre-kid versus like, I can't cram Mm -hmm. the night before Mm -hmm. (laughs) a test uh, when you have a kid because stuff inevitably happens. So when I was in, in grad school, I essentially treated my grad program like a job and I was there to do it from eight to five, Monday through Friday, every day. And I would start my day trying to get ahead on any assignments that I, I could I would try to, you know, do as much homework or reading as I could and just treat it like a formal job. And then my classes would always occurring, luckily, between that eight and five time. And what that left me then with was I had majority of my weekends were then free to be able to, you know, to be with my family because that was what was most important Mm -hmm. to me. It was like, okay, even though I'm going to dedicate this time as a grad student, uh, my evenings, my weekends need to be with my family that didn't work every evening and weekend because yeah. there's sometimes the the workload is too much and i also i you know recognize i came from a really privileged place in that i went into grad school already doing the work and knowing what was expected of me and knowing how to do the work because i had such great work experience prior to grad mm-hmm. school and so that made me a lot more of an efficient student in order to get my work done and i also was really good at saying no (laughs) during, during grad school, which is, it's so easy to get sucked in and say yes to like all the mini projects. Um, Luckily the only mini project I took on was the eyeball one. Yeah, (laughs) That was the only one I said yes to. And that was a good thing, but for the most part, you know, saying no and I just had a really strict schedule with myself to, to get things done. And I think that works well for, a master's where you have a really definitive, like starting and end mm-hmm. date. Um, I think a PhD is probably a, a lot different because like, it's just, you know, it's a longer process and you have the qualifying exams. I don't know how I would try to approach it the same way, but I don't know how successful I would be.
0: <laughs> yeah, Awesome. That's great. So this next question is somewhat related, but I always like to ask people what their hobbies and interests outside of work are just to remind ourselves that we're people outside of fish. (laughs) (laughs) We are
1: multifaceted people. Yeah. So I, for anybody who knows me, I love baking and I love cooking. I was, uh, I love baking breads. This was something started pre pandemic. Although I was excited to see everybody else join, uh, jump on Mm -hmm. the bread train during the pandemic. (laughs) But yeah, I've always had like a huge love of British Bake Off their beginning because it's such a wholesome show Mm -hmm. and I like that it's non-competitive I don't like the stressful Mm -hmm. um reality shows really too much with the exception of RuPaul's Drag Race I love that show (laughs) um that's one of the few shows I watch but um British Bake Off is my comfort show because it's just it's very relaxing you learn so many cool techniques uh, I love trying uh, all the different technicals. One of my, my my previous bosses, she actually was in England, and she brought me back the apron and one of the Bake Off uh, cookbooks. And so I made the the classic uh, iconic British Bake Off cake That's that awesome. I brought to Lab Mean. Although it was kind of a, <laughs> I did it also because I was telling that was the day I was telling the lab that I was leaving. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> but they but they got the British Bake Off cake in exchange. Um, yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah, so I I love to bake and I spend a lot of time I feel like in my kitchen and uh, the holidays is like my time to shine because I love everything about the holiday process and especially the baking yes and um and the gift wrapping and everything about it so um I'm, this is my like slump time of the year. Because I'm sad that the holidays are over. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I'm still baking up a storm. I already made like a couple of loaves of ciabatta bread and <laughs> all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it's hard to have too many hobbies. I feel like when you have three kids um, and yep. a job. But the the baking one, I think, is the easiest one to have that also pleases everybody in the house. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's great.
0: <laughs> awesome. Um, okay. Well, Miranda, this brings us to the end of what we call the tough part of the interview. I personally think the next five questions are harder, but you can decide or see how they go. Um, And so these are our final five questions, which we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one is what is your favorite fish?
1: These are hard questions. (laughs) I've actually been staring at these questions since you sent them to me, (laughs) wondering how I'm going to answer these because I love, there's so many fish I love and I'm sure the answers I'm going to give, I'm going to have like five more that I wish I would have said couple hours from now. So I'm going to divide my fish into categories. So one of my favorite freshwater fish would be the devil's hole pupfish, because I love how just crazy resilient and cool Mm -hmm. these little fish are. And like the kind of climate that they can survive in is just unreal to me. As far as saltwater fish goes, it's it's a really big toss up between a weedy sea dragon, because they're just so beautiful and peaceful. And like any good seahorse, I feel like they evolutionary have it fig- figured out with having the males have the babies. Like that's iconic behavior right there. <laughs> um, and then or an ocean sunfish or mola mola. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just so funny looking to me and just so cool. And they're so big. And I just I love their giant faces. And I've had the privilege of seeing that one in the wild before and like a little so um. Cool. A little seagull just like hanging out on top of it while it's just like floating on the water. Uh, it was so cute. I was freaking out because it was just the coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. But I also, I gotta give a shout out to my salmon because one, for providing me with a career, they're also my favorite sushi to eat. <laughs> and so um, I feel like, you know, I gotta work hard so I can continue to eat them as well. But they're also just such cool fish. I, I think it's super cool that any fish can go back and forth between starting in freshwater and then moving to a saltwater environment, which is a really hard transition. Mm-hmm. And then coming coming back um, and spawning and dying. They're just they're so cool. But then I don't know. And then get sturgeon and gar. Yeah. Like I don't know. There's just there's <laughs> there's so many. Um, yeah, because like. Growing up, gar was one of my favorite because that was Mm -hmm. one of the few fish, gar and carp, because those are the ones you can actually see on the surface. But yeah, it's hard. That's a hard question. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) It's like asking me a favorite kid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. The next one is, what is your favorite memory from your career so far?
1: This is another hard one. Um, My lab for, you can kind of see it in the background there. They made me a collage of photos as a send-off goodbye present of all these amazing memories. So I was actually referencing that when thinking about this question, um, and it's really hard to say because there is one. There was one day that was so much fun with Dr. Rachel Johnson and my former mentors and bot, well, still current mentor really, where me and her went and presented on the eyes and ears research in this warehouse in uh, Reading to talk to. Um, the the team that was actually taking the eyeballs for us and collecting them because you know that's a really tough ask out of people is asking them to pull eyeballs from rotting salmon and they were just like such game for it and so we brought them pizza and told them what we were doing with all of their eyeballs and um and then we also that same day we brought back an insane amount of winter run eyeball winter run salmon eyeballs um, and it was just such a weird, funny day. But also there's, um, you know, really anytime I got to guest lecture in Dr. Andrew Ripple's class is like always super cool because I took that class as an undergrad. so it's insane to for me to think about being there and actually lecturing college students. And then pretty much this entire this is gonna like be a really niche thing to say to like only a few people are gonna get it, but the entire twenty seventeen field season <laughs> with the uh, with Carson Jeffries and uh, Molly Ogas, so shout out to them, uh, was just like the most fun f- field experience. Um, and Eric Holmes too. And I'm just gonna like have to give a shout out to the San incident of twenty seventeen because um, we actually have a commemorative mug over that. And so that's just like such a that was such a hilarious fun time we actually somehow also got work done but we also had a great time doing it and then as far as accomplishments go though um being on science friday was a wild experience and um i was like eight months pregnant my internet went out and so i was trying to like get my internet back while not bursting into tears because i was super mm-hmm. hormonal and emotional <laughs> and uh, but then logging back on and doing the whole interview in one take was it was a crazy experience and I think I went and laid down afterwards because I was just <laughs> I was just spent emotionally <laughs> from it um yeah so there's so many good ones so it's really hard to pick but those are some of my top favorites
0: yeah that's awesome I just realized I meant to add a question about this and completely forgot but do you do a lot of science communication work as well I feel like I saw that on your cv
1: yeah, I, I end up doing, yeah, I do a lot of blog posts. I, ha, I haven't done it as much lately, but I'm very involved in I'm AFS, American Fishery Society. I'm the current Calneva president for them. And then I also used to do a lot more outreach with schools, with salmon in the classroom, taking kids on field trips at our field sites and trying to get them really jazzed about zooplankton and excited and teaching them about fish. I've gone to lots of classrooms, actually recently just did a salmon dissection for my son's class um, with another uh, fish mom. <laughs> so we, we pulled apart two adult salmon to show them the anatomy for them. Um, so yeah, my I, I do a lot of science communication all over um, in, all ter- in all different ways. It's kind of yeah. all over the place. I don't do as much as I would like to, but mm-hmm. I I love um, working with students and getting them excited about science. Just because, like, I was never a great student in my undergrad, and so it's always really important to me to show other students that like you really don't need to be like the best student. Like you Mm -hmm. just need to keep trying and try hard, and that like you can do whatever you want as long as you keep trying, (laughs) kind of thing. So, and I also didn't really, I didn't know any scientists growing up too. So, being able to visit lots of classrooms and Trying to introduce students that like look at this derpy person. I am also a scientist. <laughs> like we're not all lab coats. Yeah. Um, sometimes we're and muddy waiters outside, and I'm like that's still a scientist. So it's really important for me to be able to chat with kids and introduce them to that. You know, all different types of science out there.
0: Yeah, awesome. Okay, good. I'm glad I remembered to ask. while you're still. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that too. <laughs> Okay, great. Next one. What is your dream job and or location?
1: Yeah, so this one would be a tie either between Monterey Bay working at MBARI, like the Monterey Bay Mm -hmm. Aquarium Research Institute, like who doesn't want to work there and live in Monterey, which is such a gorgeous place. Or um, I really fell in love with Bainbridge Island. And I've always loved Seattle. And I love the salmon culture up there in Washington. Mm -hmm. And I love how much it rains as well. And it's so green. So i wouldn't mind having a job up there at all. Yeah, for sure.
0: Okay. Next question is if money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on?
1: Yeah. So if money wasn't an issue, I mean, I would just be like a side consultant. (laughs) I would would stay home with my kids instead. And um, if anybody wanted help on islands projects, I'd be happy to, I would still first be doing eyeball projects. I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure. Um, just because I really do love isotope research it's really fascinating so basically I would just be able to hire for for consulting work (laughs) to help on any eyeball project that anybody wanted I don't know of any any specific project that I would like to work on except for maybe making more bread or cookies nice all
0: right our last question is if there's one pointer principle you could have programmed into everyone's
1: head what would it be I thought about this one and one that kept coming up with is imposter syndrome is so real and everybody to some degree probably has it, especially it's really common in science and in grad school. I feel like mine went from bad to worse. And I still have a lot of imposter syndrome today, even though like there's so much that I do and help out with, I still feel like I'm a fraud in some way somehow. So, and I, and I hear from a lot of people who are even higher up than me or who've been in this field longer, that they also to some degree still have some imposter syndrome. And so I just think that it should just be more commonly known that a lot of this is a common experience that we all to some degree have mm-hmm. and that it's okay and that we're all doing the best that we can and that it's okay to be wrong and to not be, and just don't be so hard on yourself. That's what I'm trying to work on is I don't need to be perfect mm-hmm. and I, it's okay to be wrong and to make mistakes and because everybody does and that, um, and that kind of helps keep the imposter syndrome kind of mellows a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great. Well, Miranda,
0: thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was so fun um, hearing about your work and more about you. If people want to get more information about your work or talk to you about fish eyeballs, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you for that?
1: Yeah, my email. Um, I'm still at my. I still have my UC Davis email that I use for a lot of the lens work. It's Mirbel M I R B E L L at uc Davis.edu, Or you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I, I'll kind of forget what my Twitter handle is. It's I think Merble <laughs> in <M-I-R-P-L-E. laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, I don't know what my Twitter handle is. I totally forgot it. But you guys can find it. If you search Miranda Bell Tilcock, it comes up.
0: <laughs> okay, great. I can put those in the, the show notes as well so I can go double okay. check what it is on Twitter. <laughs> awesome, thanks. <laughs> I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod, or send us an email to feedback at the fisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or stream it from Spotify or the And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinle. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, don't be too hard on yourself.